namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami We're continuing uh, this teaching, uh, Dependent Origination uh, Dhamma Talk number four, called Feeling, Conditions, Desire. This is chapter 25 of volume three of uh, the uh, Lumpur Sumato Anthology of Teachings. So these were talks given in 1988. Our normal breathing is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It's neither attractive nor unattractive. That's why you have to pay attention to it. Because if the breath were attractive, it would attract you. And I wouldn't have to say, watch your breath. You'd be watching it anyway, because it was so attractive. Breathing is the most important physiological function, and the body does it, whether we're aware of it or not. Whether we're crazy or sane, young or old, male or female, rich or poor, or whatever. Breathing is this way. It's neither exciting or interesting, nor is it disgusting or revolting. But as we concentrate, bring our attention to breathing of the body, what happens? Well, when I concentrate on my breath, the mind goes tranquil. I feel tranquilized by being able to concentrate on the breathing of this body. Anapanasati is boring to most people at first. Just inhalation, exhalation, the same old thing. The breathing of the body is neutral Vedana. So when we do the meditation of sweeping through the feeling of the body, the pressure of the body sitting on the seat and the clothes touching the skin, that's neutral feeling. Then we can observe the Vedana through the ear, the nose, the tongue, the eye, the body, the mind. And we start to see that this is just the sensory realm, not a person, just the way it is. There's nothing wrong with that, nothing bad about it at all. Vedana is all right. There's just the pleasant and the painful and the neutral. They're just what they are. However, to be aware of pleasure, pain and neutral Vedana means that we have to bear it, really accept it, rather than just reacting to it. We reflect on it, contemplate it, so that we really understand it. If we don't contemplate and have insight into Vedana, we just continue this process of paticca samupada. So we have desires, because Vedana conditions tanha, desire. But with insight, we can break the habit. We can contemplate Vedana. Then we begin to understand how desire arises, wanting the pleasure, not wanting the pain, and just ignoring the neutral. This is Lumpur talking particularly about um, neutral feeling and uh, using the the cycles of the breath. Um, and uh, as uh, uh, he uh, he points out uh, later on in the, in the talk, that uh, uh, probably ninety eight percent of our life is neutral feeling, and only two percent is is pleasant and painful. And so uh, it's one of the reasons why we make such a, a particular effort in Buddhist practice of 
cultivating awareness of a neutral feeling, like the, the rhythm of the breath. It's not exciting, it's not compelling, it's not something that catches our attention unless we've got some kind of breathing problem or the, uh, the, the air is filled with smoke or something, then, then we notice it. But it takes a, a certain amount of effort to bring attention to neutral feeling and to sustain attention upon that. So that's a particular kind of, uh, of work that we're, we're doing because uh, as our instinctual process is conditioned, yeah, it's like a, a, the result of our animal body and the, the, the very ancient uh, instinctual uh, processes of, of living and, and the, uh, having a, an organic physical body as we do, then uh, the attention goes to what's pleasant and what's painful. And if things are neutral, then we tend to switch off or ignore them or or um, find some other kind of distraction. So uh, the Buddha emphasizes this quality of bringing attention to to the ordinary, to uh, say to uh, to sustain the quality of mindfulness. As uh, um, Lumpur Sumedha would also often repeat as a sort of motto for Amravati: mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful never die. The heedless are as if dead already. That's the sort of national motto for the deathless realm. <laughs> the Dhammapada, I think it's verse verse number 21 of the Dhammapada. And so um, it's very easy, but particularly if most of our life is indeed neutral feeling, for us to drift into being uh, unmindful, to, to uh, say, if it's not exciting or it's not irritating, it's not compelling, then just switching off and uh, uh, letting our attention drift away, then we're missing most of our life. Uh, we are we're not there <laughs> for for our own life, and so the uh, the exercise of bringing attention to neutral feeling, and not just the breathing, but also the the, the motion of the body walking on the ground, the feeling of our our, our feet uh, meeting the ground as we walk, just the the ordinary everyday sensations. Uh, so much of the forest tradition practice is around that bringing attention, developing, developing mindfulness of the body, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, coming, going, um, and uh, ordinary, everyday, unremarkable activities. And that's the, the, uh, in a way the, the principal tool that we use to cultivate our ongoing mindfulness. And so then that we're actually present for our, our, for our own life and to be then um, able to, to work with, with life and to use that each moment as an opportunity to awaken to the reality of things, so that um, it's a uh, it's a um, kind of going against the current of of a society and our ordinary conditioning. If something is is not special, it's, if it's if it's boring, then uh, then it doesn't have any value. Kind of you can ignore it, but the uh, the encouragement is to uh, rather than ignoring the neutral to to deliberately bring attention to that, to the, to the ordinary, and to realize that the, uh, as I like to point out, the, the, the word uh, dhamma is there in, the, in dhammata, what means, which means that which is natural or familiar. In the Thai language, the word tamada means ordinary or natural, uh, nothing special, but it's, it's, it's based upon the Pali word dhammata, of the nature of dhamma. So right there in the word, uh, for ordinary is the Dhamma, so that uh, when we uh, uh, say don't uh, switch off or just ignore the the everyday activities that um, 
say the 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 uh, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, the rhythm of the breath, the rhythm of our footsteps, and and so on and so forth. The coming of day and of day and night, the the changing of of the uh, the seasons and the the patterns of light and dark and so on, completely unremarkable. You know, it's not it's not special that the you know, the sun comes up in the morning and in this part of the day there's light and the other half of the day it's dark. It's it's not special, <laughs> but when we bring attention uh, to that, then that is the gateway to the realization of uh, of dhamma, and so that uh, that. Uh, in a way, mindfulness of neutral feeling is a, a really essential uh, quality of um, of the practice, and that uh, is a uh, something that uh, every every hour, every minute of the day, we can we can develop if we if we as long as we see the, the value in that, then we will put it, put the uh, effort and energy into say developing that attention, and then seeing the results of that. If you are uh, if you're watching, if you're aware, if you're paying attention to to your life moment by moment, then you you realize that that's also uh, it's when we pay attention that we can also bring about the ending of, of dukkha. That it's because of not paying attention, because of ignorance, you know, switching off, being distracted. That's where we uh, unconsciously follow our impulses of chasing after what we like and complaining about or, or criticizing and, and creating negativity to things that, that we dislike. So any thoughts, questions? Roman, you have a question? If you can use the microphone, please. Thank you, Arjun. Um, I was wondering you could uh, elaborate on the difference between equanimity and indifference because it seems sometimes a bit dicey to keep it um, on the equanimity side and not drifting to indifference when I think of the Buddha I think that basically he had to be convinced to teach for, for, uh, well that's how the story goes at least mm -hmm. right and um, so in my mind he would have been indifferent to being killed. Um, if someone came around the corner, um, he wouldn't have cling, clung to his life. Um, but at the same time, he had this great compassion, this ocean of compassion. So I wonder how that works together and how we can prevent ourselves from drifting into indifference, from equanimity. Yeah, good question. Um, well, the, it's one of those Pali words, Upeka is the Pali word, and it's one of those uh, words that doesn't really have a perfect English counterpart. So equanimity, in, in English it comes across as a sort of emotional flatness, so in a way it can be quite uh, close to indifference. And you do have a, a few places in the Pali canon where it uses the word, as far as I know, I couldn't tell you exactly where they are, but uh, I understand it's the case that upeka does actually mean indifference. It's like a, a, you know, a not caring. Um, but mostly uh, upeka is, uh, it's a brahma-vihara. It's the most refined of the four brahma-viharas. So it's a great brightness of the heart. And uh, a number of years ago, Lumpur Sumedho started using the word serenity, do you know the word serenity? Yeah. So serenity as a, a, an alternative translation because equanimity has got a, a kind of bland flatness to it where 
you know, kindness and compassion is you know, have a, a a tone of of kind of uh, expansiveness or or um, sympathetic joy. You know, there, there's a brightness. So equanimity seems like a bit of a letdown. Like, oh. <laughs> but it's in terms of the Brahma Viharas. Like usually in in the Buddha's lists, the last one on the list is the most refined or the most um, say. Uh, um, Subtle, and so that equanimity, upeka, is the tenth of the ten paramitas. It's the fourth of the four Brahma Viharas. It's the seventh of the seven factors of enlightenment. So, on all those lists, it's the kind of it's the most refined of the factors of enlightenment. It's the most uh, sort of refined of the four Brahma Viharas. It's the the the, the final as uh, a uh, paramita um, in that the list of ten paramitas. So. Uh, it's uh, if you if you reflect upon it in that way, then it's it's not just a a brightness. It's kind of almost like the the most um, sort of substantial, pervasive, and um, uh, say liberating of the the four Brahma Viharas. So um, it, it, in that can, in that sense, it's it's really a mistake to <laughs> to think of it as the same thing as indifference. Uh, and so that uh, there's also, I believe, there's somewhere where the Buddha says, in terms of conditioned states, uh, again, I, I don't have a reference for this, but somewhere he says something like, in terms of, uh, of conditioned states of mind, then uh, upeka is the closest uh, to nibbana, as a, you know, nibbana is an un unconditioned quality of, of mind. But in terms of conditioned qualities, things that begin and end and so on, then uh, upeka is the, sort of like a, a sort of close comparison or a, a, a sort of a, a near uh, near in its quality to that that great peacefulness uh, and, and expansiveness spaciousness of nibbana so it's a very exalted and, and beautiful noble quality in that respect so um, one of the ways of talking about uh, or developing um, uh, upeka if you if you're familiar with the chanting then there's a, a, a particular chant that we do with respect to the Brahma Viharas, and um, which is "Ahang uh, Sukito uh, Homi," may I abide in well-being, um, and then may all may all being may everyone abide in well-being, and then the second part is Karuna, uh, um, may all beings be released from all suffering. And the third one is mudita, may all beings not be parted from the good fortune they have attained. And then the last one, uh, when he talks about the development of upeka, it changes gear because it, it's talking about cause and effect. I'm the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma, abide supported by my karma. Whatever karma I shall do for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. So the reflection that supports the development of upeka is really seeing things in terms of the natural order, in terms of cause and effect. So it's... Um, so that's one way of of um, uh, developing it. So there's a, a an an evenness of attitude. It's like, oh, uh, well, of course, you know, th this is the cause. This is the effect. Nothing has gone wrong. It's it's nature works this way. So um, that uh, is not necessarily, and it's not an indifference, which it, it would indicate a kind of 
shutting down or not caring, but rather it's it's a, an, an evenness of heart or an, an openness of, of heart or attitude that is recognizing, oh, nature works this way, how, how could it be otherwise? Uh, uh, and so it, it's got that quality of, um, say, all-encompassing uh, acceptance. Uh, the... Um, uh, the other thing about uh, Upeka, when talking about it, uh, I, I like to, to, to speak of it myself in terms of it's the, the heart's response to agitation or turbulence. That, that in your, your heart, which can be completely still, irrespective of the amount of activity and busyness, turbulence going on around you. So rather like the at the center of the spinning wheel or the center of the cyclone of the of the hurricane, there's a the eye of the the eye of the of the storm is things are very still. So upeka can be that that quality of inner stillness in the midst of a lot of activity. It doesn't mean that that activity is is suppressed or is ignored, but there's a, a, a centeredness uh, in in the midst of that activity, so that. Despite uh, all the agitation and turbulence, the heart is is unshaken in the face of that. There's um, uh, there's <laughs> the, uh, there's a, a lot you can say about Upeka. Um, a, a few years ago, uh, Ajahn Punadamo and I, he's, a, he's the abbot of the little monastery in uh, Ontario, um, Arrow River Hermitage, and. Uh, some we were invited to do a study weekend at the Buddhist uh, at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, and somebody said, "Oh, could you do a weekend on Upeka?" I said, "A whole weekend on Upeka? What's there to say about Upeka?" Yeah. Well, okay. Well, we'll you know we'll, we'll probably run out of, of the topic, but you know we can we can come up with something to fill out the fill out the hours. When we started looking into it, both of us found like, "Wow, is a weekend's not going to be enough." There was a, a lot of different dimensions to it. Um, and uh, so, um, without going into, into too much detail, that one of the, speaking of that quality of, of centeredness, there's a Pali word, a very a long Pali word called Tatra Majatata, which means in the middle of thatness. So that's another of the aspects of Upeka, is like that being in the middle, being centered. And so that, that image of the, the, the center of the cyclone or the, the, uh, the, the eye of the hurricane, that, that tatra majatata in the middle of that, so that the opaka is being at the center of things and being unshaken in that, in that kind of um, centeredness. Does that make sense? So as for the, the, the newly enlightened Buddha being um, okay with someone coming along and killing him, I think that's... Um, it's in the realm of your imagination. <laughs> he probably also had realized that, you, that nobody can deliberately take the life of a Tathagata. It's impossible. After, if no, yeah, if, if a fully enlightened Buddha can't be killed. They can, they can shed, uh, some of them can shed their blood, but they can't die by violence, according to the Buddhist mythology. Um, but um, so I, I think uh, uh, it's probably not very profitable for you to sort of go into that projection of what the Buddha would, would feel or wouldn't feel. <laughs> um, but uh, that, um, you know, because also that, um, you know, that, that time he was seeing that um, the subtlety of what he had awakened to, 
and the difficulty of conveying that understanding to uh, a, a kind of population of beings that were addicted to becoming to bhavatanha then there was that sense of of uh, it's it's too uh, impossible a task but then uh, when the brahma sahampati came along and said well look you know there's so, uh, some beings with a lot of dust in their eyes and some beings with very little dust in their eyes and the buddha was immediately um to responded to that and said oh yes that's a good point and so then that motivated him to be teaching for the next 45 years so um so anyway i uh, i mean you you can use your imagination as you choose <laughs> but um i i wouldn't want to to guess that the buddha would have been indifferent quote unquote if somebody came along and said i'm going to kill you i think well i, I would just park that particular imaginative stream it's not being something very very helpful to think in terms of you know second guessing what the buddha would think or wouldn't think is 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 yeah, not very helpful i find myself so that the um the indifference uh, the way we use the word in in english um is is really uh, it's like a a vibhava tanha it's a shutting down it's like an i don't care so there's a numbing that's going on um and so that there's like a, a deliberate uh so attachment to, to not feeling so there's a a a a choice to to disconnect so i would say that's a very uh, it is a kind of of upeka but it's a very coarse and uh worldly kind of uh, of upeka and one that's going to bring more suffering because you can only stay numb for so long and then the the numbness wears off you know, and that the the effects of of trying to switch off and and keep things uh, away that, that that can only last for a certain amount of time and then you know, we we end up feeling things uh, at least in my experience we end up feeling a lot of things anyway so the um um that kind of indifference it's a uh, and it's why I, i feel a lot of reasons why people drink or use um uh use pres- prescription drugs or non-prescription drugs <laughs> to sort of flatten their emotions to to not feel that's to 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 forget to to not feel and that's uh, in that effort to to, to um be indifferent to just to not care that's uh, that's a lot of the reason why why we drink you know alcohol and you use drugs to to try and stop that but again you can only drink so much and then you you still keep feeling or the drugs can only work for a certain amount of time and then they they wear off and the the the, the system is still sensitive i would say and so that that kind of numbing is not a, an ending of suffering it's a it's a sort of temporary pausing like you know, using a an an opiate to to numb the pain if you've got a, an injury um it it can numb painful feelings temporarily but it it, it can't possibly be a a, a long term or a comprehensive solution so that um that um uh, equanimity i feel that uh, it, and one one of the things uh, i when talking about upeka i find um, most often i'm reminding people it's it's a it's a great brightness so using the word equanimity really it's not it's not very helpful so it's it's like a great brightness of the heart yes there's a quality of of um of serenity there 
and uh, uh, not being shaken or not being upset by things. But that's not from an emotional flattening or a numbness. It's, it's a great spacious brightness. And so I, I tend to find that when I'm asked to explain it, then uh, it's that sense of being at the center of things, that tatramajatata, that sort of, uh, uh, and that so you're not suppressing or, or switching off from the, the, the world of activity, uh, but rather there's that centeredness of being in the middle of it and letting the, the world spin around you, or whirl around, W-H-I-R-L, to let the things whirl around you. The, um, there, there's a, a particular sutta in, in the Majjhima Nikaya where the Buddha talks about um, equanimity based on diversity, equanimity based on, on, on unity, and equanimity based on, uh, on atamayata, on, on uh, non-identification uh, non or non, not made of thatness. <laughs> And so if you're interested, that's a, a, a useful uh, teaching to, to look up. And so that uh, it's talking about the varieties of equanimity. So the first kind of equanimity is um, uh, being still in the, in the face of a lot of different variety. And then, it's, uh, then the, the equanimity or the, the upeka is then... Um, so it's that being in the midst of a lot of things and not being uh, shaken or, or disturbed by that. And then um, it's sort of the, the, with increasing wisdom, increasing clarity, then it's equanimity based on, on unity is that there's uh, a sense of letting go of, the, of the, the variety of different objects and just uh, equanimity just as, in a sense being in that quality of awareness, knowing, oh, that's just the field of experience. So not focusing on the detail, but just uh, uh, being aware, that, you know, here is the subject, there is the object, you know, there, this is the awareness, here's the field of activity going on. So there's a unity uh, in terms of perception. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then the, the third level, uh, equanimity based on atamayata, uh, if you remember, so atamayata literally means not made of that. So it's um, that uh, the, the the perfection or the, the fulfillment of equanimity is there is no that. It's like the letting go of the whole subject-object duality. So that there's um, the that is the, uh, in that particular sutta that's described as a sort of the the culmination or the perfection of of upeka is in that. So it's a, it's a state of great clarity and great great wisdom and a letting go of the whole subject-object duality. So, as I said, I did a whole weekend on <laughs> on Upeka. There's, there's a lot that, that's there, but it's a um, uh, so there's there's different dimensions to it. But I feel there's some gives you some leads into that area. Okay, so to continue. A person who lives a very fast life has a life based on going from one exciting, thrilling thing to the next. When we think of really exciting lifestyles, what's usually involved? Usually, they're full of frantic attempts to have a fantastic sensual experience, always running about. Because yesterday's fantastic sensual experience is boring. There's a need to have new sensual experiences, new romances and adventures, because anything becomes boring when it's repeated. 
So samsara is the cycle, the endless running about looking for the next interesting thing, the next excitement, the next romance, the next adventure, the next, the next, the next. Notice how insidious that is in our lives. Even in the monastic life, even in a meditation retreat, we can still be caught up in trying to get onto the next thing, sitting here thinking about what we'll do after the retreat, or trying to find something to make our lives more interesting here at Amravati. I'm sure that hasn't crossed anybody's mind. <laughs> what is interest? Things that are interesting are things that are attractive and hold our attention. We want to be attracted by something. We want attractive things, pleasurable experiences, beautiful objects, beautiful music and sounds. They are interesting. They hold our attention. They please and fascinate us. If an experience is unpleasant, we dread it. For most people, the idea of having to be in some place where there's nothing beautiful, dreary, boring people, gross, coarse and bad odours, men and women who have no culture, disgusting, foul, stinking, evil brutes, pain, sickness, can be a hell realm. We dread that this is what we might end up with. It might happen that we get stuck in some miserable place, so we want to avoid and get rid of all of that, and then try to get hold of as many pleasant experiences as possible. And yet, most of our lives are neither pleasant nor painful, Vedana. When you contemplate most of your life, I'm sure that for most of you, about 98% has been neither pleasant nor painful. When I think of my life, about 2% has been highly pleasant or highly painful. And about 98% has been neither pleasant nor painful, but just what it is. And yet that 98% of one's life can go by totally unnoticed because we're so attached to the extremes of waiting for the next thing, longing and expecting and hoping, and then dreading and fearing the possibility of not having any more pleasure, not having a good time. Well, just think of our day here at Amravati or anywhere in the world, how much of it is really pleasurable or painful? The Buddha advised us to bring our attention to the neither pleasant nor painful things in life because to accept and notice neither pleasure nor pain, so the Pali for that is adukamasuka, neither pleasure nor pain, means we have to be attentive and alert. If something is not attractive or repulsive, it doesn't make us react. It doesn't stimulate our minds at all. So we have to bring our attention to it, be awake to it. That's why in meditation we sit, we stand, we walk, we lie down. Four basic postures, normal breathing, things that are so ordinary but are not pleasurable nor painful. The practice of mindfulness is to bring our attention to Vedana. But we're not attaching to neutrality either. We're not trying to attach to either pleasure or pain. So, to study Vedana, we're not trying to live a neutral existence. But bringing attention to it means that we have to put effort into just sitting, standing, walking, lying down being awake, being here and now. We have to pay attention. We have to learn to concentrate the mind. So uh, in one of uh, John Lennon's songs, um, he was slightly misquoting Samuel Johnson, the uh, famous English writer. He said, life is something that happens while we're making other plans. So it's very easy to miss our own life. I mean, I'm not reading anybody's mind. So how did he know? <laughs> 
<laughs> because that's what uh, most of us do. Life is something that happens while we're making other plans. So we can be so busy um, planning and uh, revisiting the past and off in our invented mental world that we're, we miss the people that we're with, the things that we're doing, and that uh, life passes us by. We're not actually present for our own life. And so, as I was saying earlier, and what Lumpur's saying here now, is uh, that 98% of our life is <laughs> to lean into that, to pay attention to that, and to cultivate that mindfulness uh, of the ordinary, the adukamasuka, so that uh, we are able to uh, uh, awaken that you know the dhamma is here and now it's not in five minutes or next week or after the retreat's finished or or last year it's a sanditiko akaliko it's apparent here and now ever present timeless it's the pachupana dhamma the here and now dhamma so if we want to realize the dhamma that means <laughs> the mind has to pay attention to the present if it's often its imagination of what the future is going to be or what the past was like then necessarily it can't be attuned to the dhamma which is here and now QED, as they say, so that uh, that um, the the kind of um, primary ethic or, or practice of the in the forest tradition training is you know, paying attention to the present moment, the, the simple everyday activities: walking, standing, sitting, lying down, being with what's going on, being with with what you're doing. And even though it's nothing remarkable, it's deliberately plain and simple then that very keying of the attention into the present is the, the very uh, sort of the, the door to the deathless. It's like the, that Lumpur um, Sameho begins his Dhamma teachings with um, uh, the, the doors to the deathless are open, let, let those he, who hear uh, demonstrate or uh, show, uh, send forth their faith, act upon their faith. Uh, the, um, again, it's a verse from the, from the Dhammapada. So the, the doors to the deathless are open, and the, the door of, is always open here in the uh, in the present. One of the things about uh, Vedana, again, I was talking um, uh, about uh, in, in Lumpur's teachings here about how that link between Vedana and Tanha is a sort of key focus of of attention. Um, uh, the the weakest link in the Paticca Samuppada. There's uh, another of the the Buddha's teachings where he he maps out a a causal chain. Uh, this is again in the Book of the Tens in the um, uh, Anguttara Nikaya, and uh, it, it's uh, it, it starts off by saying um, uh, the um, uh, all things are rooted in, in in interest. So rooted in interest are all things. So having interest, I'm putting your interest uh, on on something. Born of attention are all things. Arising from contact are all things. And then uh, either meeting at feeling or diverging into feeling. Vedana samosarana is the Pali. So it can be diverging into feelings or converging on feelings, depending on exactly how you translate it. But it's rather like the image of a tree. I like to think of this as an image of a tree. So rooted in interest, so chanda, uh, chanda mula, the, the root is an interest, chanda. That's sort of the, the root of the tree. And then born of attention as the, so the trunk of the tree rises from the ground. Um, uh, then born of attention uh, are all things. Um, uh, arising from contact, so the trunk of the tree is like contact, and then where the branches spread out is uh, in the, the the spreading of feeling, where the 
the, the, the you can say the, the branches meet the trunk or the trunk diverges into the branches. That's where, where things uh, go off into feeling. So then it's a slightly different sequence than he has in the dependent origination because then he says, so diverging into feelings are all things and then headed by concentration, dominated by mindfulness and surmounted by wisdom. So that the, the world of Vedana, headed by concentration, so like, um, so uh, uh, the, when the mind is attentive, is concentrated, is, is focused on the present, then the fullness of the feeling is noticed. So headed by concentration, so that's like contained by concentration, dominated um, by mindfulness, you know, watching how the, the feelings are changing and noticing their qualities, and surmounted by wisdom, so then seeing, oh, this is uh, impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self. That uh, the whatever the thing might be, whether it's a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, a thought, a memory, uh, imagination, a mood. Um, so diverging into those feelings, says Vedana, headed by concentration, uh, dominated by mindfulness, surmounted by wisdom. And then yielding deliverance as their essence are all things. So when things are known uh, through wisdom in the, the, any event, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touch, insight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, mood, um, intentions and uh, ideas, memories and so on, when they are known with wisdom, uh, mindfulness and wisdom, then they yield deliverance. The, 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 the effect of that is, is the freedom of the heart. And then the last two are merging in the deathless are all things, uh, which is amatogada is the Pali for that. Merging in the deathless are all things and terminating in Nibbana are all things. So it's another uh, useful sequence to, to learn so that uh, it's a kind of um, uh, uh, how the realm of feel, of contact and feeling, how that ripens when there are the skillful qualities of concentration and mindfulness and wisdom. That the, uh, so they're still feeling, but rather than going into tanha upadana bhava and sokapari deva dukkha dhammanas upayasa, so rather than the, the feeling when it's, it's influenced by ignorance, then turning into uh, craving and uh, clinging and becoming and birth and sorrow and lamentation, pain, grief, despair. Instead, when Vedana is, is held skillfully, when there's vicha, then uh, those qualities of, of samadhi, concentration, mindfulness, wisdom, then help that, uh, that experience of that feeling, pleasant feeling, painful feeling, neutral feeling, it ripens uh, as deliverance and um, there's the merging in the deathless and, and the realization of Nibbana. So that, um, that's a, a helpful little sequence to, to get to know. I think it's, it's, I think it's Sutta number 63. It's just after the one I was quoting this morning. So it's Book of the Tens. Don't, I'm not, I won't absolutely guarantee it. I think it's 63. <laughs> But I'm not absolutely sure, but it's it's in the book of the tens there, and so that uh, is a but it's a very neat way in which it says, okay, with the realm of feeling, uh, uh, pleasant, painful, neutral, then with with vija, with with a wholesome, skillful attitude, with awareness, then it ripens in a very different way than when it's influenced by avija.
So any thoughts, questions, comments? Yes, Anagarika Philippe. Thank you, Ajahn. <clears throat> I have a question about the answer you gave to Roman. I think you said and usually Upeka is the last one on the list and then most of the time the last one is the more refined or important. Yeah, mostly. I mean, it's, it's not absolutely fixed, but um, in many lists that the Buddha makes, the last one on the list is the most subtle or refined or, or um, uh, the kind of um, intangible, that kind of quality. Not, not, it's not always the case, but a lot of lists that the um, they sort of go from the course, like the five khandas. You have rupa khanda is the first one, and then vijnana khanda is the fifth one. So that it's sort of a, it's like a, a a gradation, a spectrum. So it's not absolutely always the case, but but very often it is the case. Because I was wondering, but maybe it's actually not a list, but if in the Eightfold Path mm -hmm. that will apply as well, if like right concentration, it's right Samadhi, it's more refined and more important than right view. Or that's not a list, it's something which come all together. And <laughs> uh, Well, that's a very good question. I would say that's probably one of the cases where it doesn't really apply. <laughs> A, a hole in my thesis there, but uh, you know, it's. Uh, I think one of the um, the aspects of the Pali canon is that it is kind of inconsistent. It does not always, um, uh, it doesn't always match, and that um, and so that um, I mean, sometimes people have also said, well, isn't it strange how the Buddha starts the the eightfold path with the wisdom faculties of you know right view and. And right intention, you know, wouldn't it be more sensible to start with sila and then have samadhi and then have panya at the end? Um, but he starts off with the panya ones at the beginning. But it's also um, that it's it's often spoken about how the um, the eightfold path is is not just a sort of like a single run, but also how um, the the different aspects of it support each other, so that. By establishing right view at the sort of mundane right view at the beginning, and then that from that, then from the wisdom faculties, sort of getting the mind onto the subject in a skillful way, then sila is developed in a skillful way, and then samadhi is developed in a skillful way, and then the samadhi then supports uh, a greater quality of wisdom, and uh, and then that that wisdom then uh, supports relating to the the sila in a more skillful way. So again, in one of the teachings of the um, in the Majima, you have the Buddha talking about the um, the eightfold path in a mundane uh, mode and then a supramundane mode, and so that it's, it's speaking about the uh, sort of uh, the the different factors of the eightfold path. You can relate to them in a very sort of mundane or or, or personal or mechanistic way, and then you can also relate to them far more based on wisdom and non-attachment in a non-personal way. But it's not just like, I wouldn't say it's just like two turns of the, of the, of the wheel, but rather you can, you can develop that in, in many different ways. Also, similarly, in, another, in the teaching in the, in the Majima, the Buddha picks out right view, uh, right effort, and right mindfulness as 
three particular kind of special qualities of the Eightfold Path and saying those three circle around and support all the others and they have a, like a particularly important role to play. So it's like many aspects of the teaching, it, uh, and I found this very, very helpful with the, the approach Lumpur Child and Pusameda have had over the years, is uh, rather than sort of just going to a particular explanation or a textbook, to, to pick up these, these sort of lists or particular principles and then uh, explore them in your own practice. And to consider, well, how does that work? Or, you know, is that, I think of it that way, but is that the whole story? Or this, this teaching seems to speak about it a bit differently. So how does that work together? So you're really um, digging into those, those principles and, and seeing how they work and getting a feeling for your own mind, your own life, how, how they operate. So, okay, so what's mundane right view? And then what's super mundane right view? How would that be? What's, that, what's, what's the, the, the kind of implication of that how do i feel that and again as i said a few times sometimes when you start to look at particular terms like like talking about upeka say well I, yeah it doesn't quite make sense to me i can't quite get a feeling for that and so in that if it is that way i find it's most helpful rather than just trying to think you think yourself to some kind of conclusion okay well i don't really get what that's about i don't quite see how that works okay this just put that on the shelf for the time being. I'll, you know, I'll get to that, I'll come back and re revisit that sometime. But right now, it doesn't make sense, or I can't see how that fits together. That's, that's, that's not clear. So rather than just getting into a lot of doubt or overthinking things, to just say, okay, well, right now that's not really clear. I'll, I'm interested, but exactly what that's talking about, I can't, I can't quite get a, a feeling for it, but uh, I'll... I'll uh, park it for later and then you know, a few weeks or a few months uh, uh, time then you know you hear things you hear another dhamma talk or you see something in a in a sutta and you go oh right ah that's a different way of talking about it did i see that before and then the, it clicks in a, in a different way so and, and i really i found that that whole approach to exploring like just getting a sense for what the particular words of the teachings what they refer to like I was, I was talking about just the word becoming. It took me years, like really, to just get a feeling. What's that? What is he talking? Becoming what? Like it doesn't make sense. What is that? It really, several years of, of, of hearing that in in talks and and uh, reflecting on it, and then before it's really took shape. Oh, oh, it's that feeling. Oh, oh, okay. Maybe that's it, and then you hear how it's being taught, uh, talk, uh, it's being used in a dhamma teaching, and then you see how that kind of mental state works in your own life. And you go, okay, right, becoming. I get it. I get it. Now that makes sense. So for me, that was two or three years, probably, of just that to to really get a feeling for that. So I think it's it's skillful in terms of of like the different lists that we have, like the eightfold path, or how the um, say the the five indriya you know faith energy mindfulness concentration and uh, and uh, wisdom you know how they you know, how they work together or, or you know the seven factors of enlightenment you know these kind of things so i think a sequence or do they all work together do they all rise at the same time or one leads to another how does that work <laughs> to just uh, be able to pick things up and then explore and see see how they 
they take shape in your own mind. And then it's a real living understanding, it's a living knowledge. It's not just a remembering lists, but rather you, you can you have a, a, a real sort of, uh, it's a learning that is, is in your bones. It's, uh, you, you really can know it directly. Okay, so to continue. Vedana conditions tanha. So, what is tanha? This word is translated as desire. It's when you're not aware and alert to the way things are. Then you want, or do not want. Starting from Vedana, if it's pleasurable, you want it. If it's painful, you don't want it. Then there's sensual desire, karma tanha, wanting sensory pleasures, just going around eating and drinking, listening to music and living, in a, very, uh, living a very distracted life of sensual delight. We all know that, don't we? We've all also experienced bhava tanha, desire to become, ambition. I want to become enlightened. I want to become something. I want to become a success. I want to become enlightened. I want to become good. I want to become admired and respected. Ovibhavatanha, the desi desiring to get rid of. That's a strong one too. Let's get rid of all the unpleasant things, the bad thoughts, the bad feelings, the pain, the imperfections. We can observe these three kinds of desires. We can observe and reflect on them because they're objects of the mind. They're mind objects. They're not the subject. Desire is not you, in other words. You grasp desire and you become the desired. I want this and I don't want that. I want to become a success. I don't want to become a failure. I've got to get rid of these faults. So there's the grasping of desire. And then you become somebody who wants things or doesn't want things. And that's endless. When we become a person who wants things and doesn't want things, it just goes on and on and on. There's always something we want, something we don't want. If we don't watch and observe this, uh, observe this process, our whole life is just this endless cycle of samsara going around and around, just wanting. Becoming somebody who wants something, becoming somebody who doesn't want something. And that, of course, conditions rebirth, jati. It conditions old age, sickness, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair, depression, misery. Chara maranang sokopari deva domanasu payasa. To be somebody who always has to be getting something or getting rid of something is such a painful way to live. Just contemplate, what is the real suffering in your life? When you think you've suffered, what is it that you've suffered from? It was from being somebody who wants things or doesn't want things. We talk about the first noble truth, dukkha. We all have this suffering. When there's avicca, we suffer. Our life is going to be a realm of suffering. This is becoming very obvious in affluent Western Europe, places like America and Australia, affluent societies where people get very much what they want and where suffering isn't the suffering of starvation or deprivation and brutality. But in affluent, affluent countries, there's so much misery and suffering. From what? Wanting and not wanting. Because even when we get everything we want, we want more. And there are things that we don't want. Just trying to satisfy all our desires and get everything we want is not the answer. That's not the way out of suffering. Because that process doesn't end until you see it. Until you use vicha, 
rather than avijja. So contemplate that, this wanting and not wanting, desire and the grasping of desire. When you contemplate Vedana, then you see it's just natural. Attraction, repulsion, and neither attraction nor repulsion. It's just being sensitive. For example, these flowers in front of me, hopefully placed here, <laughs> these flowers in front of me are attractive to me right now. That's just the natural way of things. There's no desire in that. If I contemplate at this moment, I don't want those flowers. There's no desire. I don't want to get rid of them either. There's no wanting or not wanting, but they're still pleasing. Their attractiveness is this way. That's Vedana. Or something ugly, like these curtains. I find them ugly. Whenever I come into this room, my mind says, those curtains are ugly. I'm, I'm not sure exactly. <laughs> I, can't remember. I was trying to remember what the curtains were like. 1988, that's more than 30 years ago. So. Was that in the old Dhamma Hall with those pale blue curtains? Or was this in the Sala? Um, hard to remember. But, uh, we, the old Dhamma Hall here that used to be the school gymnasium, um, they had these sort of powder blue curtains up at the, uh, 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 that we put up on the stage. Pa uh, pale blue was the sort of Amravati color in the early days. And they had these, um, these sort of... Uh, uh, pale blue curtains that were hung up over the stage to try and give a sort of spacious mood to the the decor but um but whether it was those curtains or other curtains i, I can't uh, i can't recall but anyway whenever i come into this room my mind says those curtains are ugly so i don't really want to look at them but i can be aware of the displeasure when my eyes contact those curtains without desiring to get rid of them it's just awareness of their unattractiveness or the wall, which is neither attractive nor unattractive, just a neutral wall. Reflecting in this way, you see that it's just a natural way of things, attraction and aversion, neither attractive nor averse, just Vedana. Desire is what we add, like for those flowers. Oh, I really want those flowers. I want those flowers in my room. I've got to have those flowers. Or the curtains. I wish they could get rid of those curtains. They really upset me. One dwells on wanting to get rid of the curtains, wanting to grab the flowers. Of course, one doesn't even notice the wall unless something attractive or unattractive appears on it. And what about the space in the room? Space is neither attractive nor unattractive, is it? So that um, you know, the, uh, uh, the comments Lumpur is making here about uh, about suffering and how e you know, easy it is to be, particularly in the affluent Western countries, and it's a it's a kind of tragic um, difficulty of uh, uh, particularly in the Western world. It's almost a, uh, always the case that when the, the more secure and stable a country is, then the, the greater the levels of depression and alcoholism and and uh, drug abuse and suicide that you get. The more the the more comfortable and uh, and sort of guaranteed and stable life is, the less physically challenging life is. Then the more people are just left with their minds, and then they, the 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 difficulties of just being with your own mind in a comfortable, secure, safe environment leads to extraordinary amounts of of depression and um, and uh, drug use and alcoholism and so forth. So that it's a a, a huge ongoing issue ar around the world. And so that it's 
uh, just having uh, stable uh, in, uh, countries with good economies or, or um, reliable um, education and medical systems and and good buses and trains and and such like that uh, that doesn't guarantee happiness in any way shape or form and so that uh, it's a it's one of those uh, tragic aspects of of the the world and also one of the 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 reasons why these kind of teachings are so are so helpful so uh, so relevant and how um the the buddhist meditation is almost like tailor made for dealing with those those kind of, those kind of issues and um since the these talks were were given um the whole mindfulness movement has has grown up around the world and a lot of that uh, the popularity of that uh, and uh, approach to dealing with this sort of um what you might call first world problems of uh, of um uh, depression in particular is because that uh, uh Buddhist meditation and mindfulness has been shown to be incredibly effective in helping to deal with these kind of issues and so that's one of the reasons why you you have so many tens of thousands of books on mindfulness and programs all over the the planet is um because of the uh that kind of um uh say physical comfort on its own and a social stability on its own doesn't make us happy and when you have everything that's secure and comfortable and predictable and there's just you and your mind and your four walls then for many of us as human beings we don't know what to do with that we can't we can't find happiness in that physical security and uh, maybe uh, just to, to mention um while I'm talking about it that um it's kind of interesting and you you might have heard me mention this before how the the um it was in around about 2007 that mindfulness became sort of uh very heavily uh known around the world and part of the reason of that was because this particular program called uh, mindfulness based cognitive therapy for depression was developed by three uh, three scientists uh, John uh John Teasdale um Zindel Siegel and Mark Williams at uh, Zindel Siegel's at University of Toronto Mark Williams was at Oxford John Teasdale was at Cambridge and together they developed this this program and uh speaking with John Teasdale uh he told me that it was listening to a dhamma talk by Lumpur Sumato that gave him the uh, initial inspiration for for that he uh, he was Lumpur was giving a talk at the um Buddhist group in the university and John Teasdale was there listening to him and uh, Lumpur made two particular points which was that our thoughts are not true and they're not ours and and uh, so John Teasdale was apparently was particularly struck by those two principles that the thoughts that we have they're not ours we're not they're, we're not the owners of them they're, they're not who and what we are and they're not true they don't tell the truth and so he uh, he thought okay, now how could we <laughs> introduce that because mindfulness based stress reduction was already very well established since the late 70s so he and these other work other um collaborators were looking for ways to help extend mindfulness based stress reduction into the treatment for depression so they had this idea of creating this this program of mindfulness based cognitive therapy particularly to work with with what they call recurrent depression because uh up to that point that uh, if you had had uh, a, a, an episode of depression 
uh, more than once, if you if you had had a, 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 an episode of depression more than once, then um, regardless of what treatment you had, whether it was a, a medication, surgery, uh, psychoanalysis, uh, therapy, uh, any kind of uh, psychiatric treatment, nothing had a better than 10% cure rate. So if you had had recurrent depression, then you were 90% likely to, to continue to have episodes of depression. If it was just one episode on its own, then it seemed to be more curable. But if you'd had more than one episode, then uh, you, the, the, the best cure rate was 10%. So between five and ten percent, nothing, no other, no treatment had a better than ten percent success rate. When they ran this program, first of all here in the UK, um, they had a fifty percent success rate, and so apparently the initial um, re reaction to that was, "This is rubbish. You, you can't be five hundred percent better than everybody else. You know, you fudged your results. This is this is fraud. It can't be true. This is ridiculous." And without any medication, you know, just with with this mental treatment, so this. Um, this mind training approach. So then they did the the study again in, with a whole different population of people in the USA. They got the same result of a 50% recovery rate. And so that's when the interest in mindfulness started going through the roof because people thought, wow, this is, this is incredible. This is a, nothing in the last hundred years has had a, a good effect like this. So not trying to blow Lomposomato's trumpet, saying... <laughs> Too much, but I think you know credit where it's due. That uh, that was a very significant insight, and and it's also it's not just in terms of of the mental well-being of individuals. Uh, it was also interesting that the number of work days lost around the world for depression is twice as large as any other cause, like from heart disease or head injuries or head injuries or eye injuries. So twice as many work days are lost all around the planet from depression than from any other medical condition. And so it's, it's a huge economic issue as well as a, as a, um, a kind of well-being uh, issue for individuals. So that um, that um, uh, I feel is one of the, the incredible blessings of Buddhist, I'm obviously <laughs> blowing our own trumpet, that one of the great blessings of Buddhist meditation is that uh, by looking and exploring what the roots of, of suffering are, then even when you've got a very comfortable and uh, predictable and stable living situation where sort of cradle to grave social care and, and, and food supply and uh, stable um, government and, and so forth, that you, uh, you are, you're able to work with your mind. You have tools to work with the mind to find uh, qualities of well-being and, um, and happiness that are so hard to find and so uh, tragically uh, evade people so that they end up with um, these deep states of, of depression and, and struggling with uh, various kinds of addiction. So I will leave it there for today. It's gone past seven o'clock already, so I'll uh, stop at that point. <laughs>